1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Wherever writing and knowledge meet, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there, too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with a lot of people. I'll be talking to the authors Martin Paul Eve, Daniel Paul O'Donnell, Robert Gaddy, Victoria O'Donoghue. Shahini, Parvin, and two further authors who couldn't make it today, Samuel Moore and Cameron Nylon, were unable to uh, make the interview. Their book, um, Reading Peer Review, PLOS One in Institutional Change in Academia, was published this year by Cambridge University Press in Cambridge Elements, the press's new concept in academic publishing. It's an open access book, so you can get your copy today. Since its rise to prominence in the late 20th century, peer review has occupied a leading place in the cultural scientific imaginary. Which of these words describes peer review for you? I'm guessing few or none. Rise to prominence? Peer review is just a normal step in the review process. Late 20th century? That can't be. Leading place, but peer review is alone in the review process of science. The cultural, scientific, imaginary? Imaginary? What's so imaginary about peer review? Well, it turns out that peer review is not all we think it is. There's very little evidence that peer review works as the process is meant to, but there is evidence to support the views that peer review delays research, peer review lacks predictive validity, peer review is only a poorly reliable judgment on research quality, Peer review is distorted by biases and subversion, and peer review can leave its mark personally on authors who must endure the scathing language of too many reviews. One reason why more of us have not realized as much as all of this is the simple fact that peer review is such a normal part of academia. It's like second nature. But we all had first to encounter peer review to enter into the peer review process or even to serve as reader before we could really come to know peer review. This normalization breeds norms. What once was something that we had to learn or learn to accept is now something fixed and not open to our acceptance or rejection. But peer review is not a non-negotiable. Peer review can be renegotiated and today more and more researchers are directing their critical attention at this central practice of scholarly communication to understand how it works, if it works, and whether it warrants acceptance, acceptance with revisions or outright rejection. Peer review, reading peer review, the book and the multi-author team are making their contribution to answers to these questions. Peer review of course is not all bad. And maybe it's just the least bad option we have. Maybe, though, we need to take into account the short history of the practice and imagine an even shorter future. Maybe peer review needs a review, and maybe we can try new and better ways of vetting research. This book, Reading Peer Review, reviews the process. And the part of that process which this seven-author team makes into their test subject is just such an innovator of peer review, namely PLOS One. Plus One has spoken here on this podcast. Scholarly Communication, Jörg Haber, former editor-in-chief, gave an interview about what open science looks like at this publisher with new practices for publishing research at this largest single journal on the planet, which set out with the vision to make all published works immediately available online with no charges for access or restrictions on subsequent redistribution or use. And the vision also saw an alternative future for peer review when reviewers sought not the novelty of the study, but the scientific soundness in the procedure, and when review would not end at publication, but continue in open format. That vision is tested in Reading Peer Review, whose authors were granted exclusive access to three years' worth of reader reports data. The team interrogated the data on these points. How have the radical propositions that led to the creation of PLOS One affected actual practices on the ground in the title? Do PLOS One reviewers behave as one might expect, given the radicalism on which PLOS One was premised? And what do answers here tell us about organizational change, about the challenges and the drivers, and just how these challenges and drivers of change relate to policy, to technology, and to society? Here's a quick intro to whom you'll be hearing today, minus uh, Cameron uh, Nylon and uh, Samuel Moore. Martin Paul Eve is Professor of Literature, Technology, and Publishing at Burbeck University of London. His interest in peer review is linked to his longstanding work on scholarly communications and open access in humanities disciplines. Martin was a PI on the project here in this book. Daniel Paul O'Donnell is Professor of English at the University of Lethbridge. He has a long involvement in open science training, standards development, and scholarly communication. Shahina Parvin is a PhD candidate in cultural, social, and political thought at the University of Lethbridge, Alberta. Her research interests focus on the questions of gender, race, disability, and power. Victoria Odenyi is a postdoctoral researcher in applied linguistics at the University of Arts London. She is interested in peer review and other tacit academic practices, including their impact on multilingual scholars and students. Robert Gaddy is a PhD candidate at University of the Arts, London. His research concerns the problem of knowledge in the arts and design. As principal editor for the Journal of Arts Writing by Students, he developed a novel peer review framework to accommodate the creative submissions of research students in the arts. So let's begin today's episode. Martin Victoria Daniel Shahina um, reading peer review. Welcome, all of you, to Scholarly Communication. Hey.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. All right. Uh, normally, I would go on asking how um, the author, s- sort of through their background and interests, came upon this project. Um, that might lead us to, <laughs> all the way to the end of the interview. I think um, a perhaps more constructive approach would simply be, how, how did this team Sort of form around uh, this, this question that you were following
3: so uh, I think we have some challenges in knowing who should speak when so I, I'm going to dive in and, and perhaps maybe Daniel in future we could direct some questions to to people so we don't speak over each other but the basic background was actually that we'd, we'd, some of us have worked previously on thinking about ideas of excellence in higher education and what this this term that, that seems so porous uh, was actually doing in various contexts. And to explore this further, we got together at the Scholarly Communications Institute in North Carolina, uh, where one of our team members casually mentioned that he had a set of peer review reports from PLOS on his laptop. And would we like to do some computational modeling of this just for fun? And we said, of course, yes, <laughs> jumped at the opportunity. but. I think we quickly realised that there was something more to be said about this process from that and that questions of how people were behaving at scale behind the cloak of anonymity of peer review were really relatively unexplored in the secondary literature. And so very fortunately for us, a funder, the uh, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, were in the room at that point and they said, if you can get hold of this database at scale to do this work properly, we'd love to to see a project out of it. Um, at which point um, we brought Shahina, Robert, and, and Victoria on board um, to work on, on the coding side of things and to develop a framework for understanding this at scale. So really our, our, our interest in it grew organically from a meeting and the questions came afterwards um, from excitement, really, at seeing the initial data set.
1: Okay. Um, anyone else have something a nuance they want to add uh, to that background? or?
0: I I could maybe uh, say something in addition to that. Um, I think also we really want to uh, credit Sam Moore uh, with putting together the group that went down to uh, North Carolina for that. And then Mellon really for uh, funding the Triangle Scholarly Communications Institute, um, uh, you know, for years now. Uh, I think this certainly seemed to be exactly what they were looking for in the sense that I think it's fair to say when we went down there, we weren't anticipating this at all, uh, partially because we didn't know, you know, that I think it was Sam had the material. I can't remember now, but we didn't anticipate, you know, that. Um, but the idea is also really interestingly developed a lot over the, the two or three days. I can't remember how long the triangle is. Um, and in other ways, didn't develop very much at all in the sense that I think some of our conclusions in the final book after doing all the work is the type of thing that we thought on the spot in, in talking it out with the other teams that were there, um, but uh, you know, with a fair bit more uh, deep knowledge of what was going on. But I think the, the main point about this was that that process of... Bringing a team that had discussed excellence before had been working together a little bit, some of the the leaders on the team, and then putting them in a room, uh, giving them a couple of days, essentially with, uh, well, in fact, a lot of whiteboards. uh, And even more important, uh, I believe it was six or seven other teams. um, And then iteratively presenting your ideas. This is what we've seen. This is what we're working on. Uh, really produced something, I think, quite interesting, which then led to this book, which I think also ended up going in ways that we hadn't necessarily anticipated.
1: Um, Maybe, I I agree, Martin, we've got a large group, so directing questions is good, but this one I'm I'm going again to just sort of throw out there. For for anyone to respond to sort of uh, gut response, what would be one of those ways that it took this project that you weren't foreseeing?
3: I mean, I, I think um, it would be interesting to hear from Shahina, Robert and Victoria in a minute, perhaps about how the, the taxonomy developed as we went through and how it was tricky to know in advance what we were looking for and how you classify things. But I suppose we, this wasn't a project where we came in with a strong set of hypotheses about things we wanted to test. We had to go into the secondary literature on peer review and ascertain How do people think people are behaving at the moment? How do we think the guidelines from PLOS One change things? And then is what we're seeing on the ground any reflection of that policy and an actual indication of institutional change? Or do people just get stuck in a rut and behave as they always do?
0: And I think I'd add to that, uh, Martin, I'm I'm sure you'd agree with this. I I was actually in Perth uh, with Cameron at the time. And I remember as we were writing it up, after the work, um, discovering that there has been some change, but also not a lot of change it is like trying to prove a negative. And I remember as sitting, looking at the work, thinking through our hypothesis and really uh, very much in a way that I'm not used to from my normal work as, a, as an English professor. Um, sitting and and really discovering out of the research uh, what I think became one of the main points of the book in the end. Uh, so this is one where from beginning to end, we were really from the very initial thinking about it right through to the, the final composition. I think we were really discovering things as we went along,
1: which in a way probably doesn't surprise because uh, I was very interested to hear about this conference background that was involved and um, my sort of light, I would call it probably light, light reading in the area of the review process and peer review hasn't shown up any study that's comparable to what you guys are doing. Um, if I take, for instance, one uh, quote from, from your book, as an occluded genre of writing that nonetheless underpins scientific publication, relatively little is known about the ways in which academics write and behave at scale in their viewing practices. And that sentence for me matched entirely with my underst- re from reading the research anyway, of you know what we actually know. And now we know something quite specific, um, I think that Would probably lead nicely into what we specifically know, and as Martin, you were saying, um, a Shaheen, of Victoria, and Robert could give us perhaps a quick breakdown as to how uh, the data was analyzed.
4: Yeah, uh, so me and uh, Victoria, uh, we started initially, uh, we were given the largest report initially, and we worked separately and in unison to try and develop a taxonomy uh, taxonomy from that. Uh, so there was, I think, about three weeks initially where we were trying to work on the largest report and then some of the uh, lower size ones to try and develop this taxonomy and keep on comparing with each other what we thought was uh, you know, happening, how we were describing what was there. And then a few weeks after, Shahina developed a taxonomy separate, and then we again compared that it's kind of a uh, generative process. Mm-hmm.
5: Yes, that, that, that's that's right, and um, I think that working sort of together in order to uh, negotiate the different um, categories, the micro and macro categories, but also um, the negotiate the process of negotiation helped us to consider some of the tensions between the depth and and breadth of of different categories. For example, um, to what extent we felt that that it was important to add new discrete categories and when uh, when we would consider some categories previously developed along the process as as redundant. So it was very much an iterative process of of negotiation, I think, between the three of us, um, drawing on our sort of previous experience of of peer review, but also our distinct uh, disciplinary backgrounds that that influenced uh, the development of the taxonomy.
1: Okay, Uh, Shahina, anything that you would like to add there or does that cover it? Uh,
2: I can add one thing. So I have totally background like uh, in coding qualitative data. So that helped me a lot and uh, I uh, can remember uh, Dr. O'Donnell and uh, I went to some text uh, primarily, and he asked me how you uh, can quote this. So I uh, explained my and. Uh, um, Explain my analysis to him and that helped me to develop my initial coding but uh, as Victoria and Robert said that uh, we had to go through uh, uh, together and uh, we um, negotiated uh, the taxonomies based on uh, the need and our observation which categories we might need uh, and which will be uh, best uh, um, um, code to
0: coding the reports. Daniel, can I add something to that that I thought was very interesting? Uh, and it would be lovely to hear what the students felt uh, about the Shaheen, Robert, uh, Victoria as well. One of the most interesting things for me about this whole process, um, and we mention it, um, but you know, the book is about something other than this. Uh, was uh, the L two aspect? Uh, and the disciplinary aspect, you, I, there's, not a, there's not a thing called D2 to indicate that you're in a different discipline as you're working. But but this idea of reading across disciplines and also uh, working um, with a non-native speaker, uh, in in the case of Shahina. Um, Shahina and I have worked together for many years on, on a variety of projects, particularly actually in journals and, and scholarly communication. But... Why I found this so interesting is because normally when we think about editorial matters, we in fact, uh, first of all, privilege uh, native speakers. And secondly, we privilege uh, disciplinary knowledge. If you're running a journal or if you're a peer reviewer, we expect you to understand the field. But the two things about this that I thought were so interesting was, first of all, that's not actually how academia works. Uh, we have many, many people who are not native speakers writing uh, and reviewing things, and you know we do talk about the way language shows up. Um, but also, what I found very interesting, in fact, in that meeting that Shahina is talking about, was the degree to which, even though we're—I'm an English professor, Shahina's in sociology, and we're reading largely biology—the um, degree to which you could still understand the peer review, that that this coding that 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 was going on, we were still able to understand it because it's really in some ways not about the science, it's about the practice of the science. And so I, I, I was involved in the coding only at the very, very beginning of this because indeed the, the coders had to negotiate that amongst themselves. But I thought I would, maybe even if you don't mind me asking the question of the students on this, how did that work in terms of both language and disciplinary knowledge?
5: um i i'll jump in jump in if that's that's okay i think um disciplinarity f- um for me sort of reflecting on on the process of developing the taxonomy and and the coding was significant um in the sense that we were we had a, we brought our own uh, subject knowledges uh, to the the, the role of, of coding but we were also navigating highly specialized discourses so I would say that um, reflecting on my experiences there there were examples of um, certain uh, statements that that were coded that I think were were very much, uh, cross uh, disciplinary in the sense that they they referred to data commentary or they may have referred to the way in which uh, a particular paper was was organized or structured. And those kinds of comments were statements were relatively transparent. Um, I'm not suggesting that they were necessarily easy to code, but they were relatively transparent. But there were certainly um, other examples from, say, biology, anthropology, um, outside uh, our partic- particular knowledge areas, which I think um, were more challenging to to understand. And um, for me, that led to, you know, reflecting on the process, it led to sort of the notion that we were uh, attempting to make sense of what has been referred to already as a, as a tacit or an occluded practice, but also through a, a, a degree of abstraction that we we didn't have access to the original um, the original papers or the reports, only the peer review report. So that was, you know, that was one aspect that um, that was particularly challenging and, and indeed took took time um, to to discuss and, and to, to to reach consensus.
4: Yeah, it was really interesting uh, digging into some of the reports, especially initially. Uh, I think there was an initial one that was about uh, dolphin biology that kind of threw us slightly so i was like do you understand you know (laughs) some of these sentences i was kind of a bit lost on but then you look for those where we were looking for sentiment as well you find those qualifications that indicate you know how the review is coming at it and then you kind of pull those out and that's what you really attend to so there was like a way around it but i felt it was good that there were three of us negotiating that as well so it lent some support to you know digging into these reports together, well, separately at first, and then together uh, in Skype sessions, we would discuss a lot of the, the codes that we were tagging.
3: I should add, of course, that... Uh, apologies for hearing my dog Toby barking in the background there. I should add that this triplicate process gave quite a high degree of confidence in the material that we were looking at, but it did also mean that it was quite... Uh, labor-intensive, to put it mildly. I mean, this this is an enormous amount of work just to tag single reports sometimes.
1: Yeah, and, and that's also mentioned in the book as um, one of the methodological re- uh, constraints that was put onto the study and part of the reason why um, the number of reviews that were actually taken up in the numbers was that number. Um, so, I think the, the, the phrase was more or less that you opted for the quality of the data analysis rather than for a breadth of, of coverage of the entire uh, data pool, uh, which I think is a very, very valid uh, decision there. I'm t- entirely fascinated by this question of L1, L2, and if I may, D1 and D2. I, I think this is this is really interesting stuff because it turns out to... Actually characterize more of the norm of I'm just going to speak from the natural sciences for now, but uh, I'm going to assume that or please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that it probably applies into the social and perhaps even to the humanities um, that. Uh, the situation of being between languages and more and more also being between disciplines because of the hyper specialization in so many of the areas of of the natural scientists i mean people don 't really call themselves for example, just biologists anymore right <laughs> they 're deep down somewhere in in some uh, mine shaft of of biology and and just a few uh, labs over there could be an entirely different kind of biology going on so this this necessity to step outside of what you know and, of course, in science, beyond your language, is just such a normal situation. And and it was methodologically involved in your study as well.
3: I mean, I think a really important point is that some of the things we saw in peer review was uh, disparaging comments about the language used in a paper. And the fact is, this is actually getting a long way from... Uh, the actual science itself, and whether it's technically sound in that, that criterion of plus one, um, you know, there are occasions where certainly writing will occlude meaning, and that that needs to be picked up. And it's important that things are written in a way that communicates with, with intent. But we were, we're also thinking at a level of abstraction here, where we're evaluating the writing of people who themselves may not be uh, home English speakers uh, for their first language who may be evaluating other people who may not be writing in their first language. And we're then trying to understand the relationship between these from a position where we've attempted to create linguistic diversity on our team. So it's really quite complicated. Um, and the disciplinary space, will just look at the composition of our, our team members to
0: get some indication of that, that challenge. And of course, an irony there was actually uh, Martin and I, at any rate, We are specialists in this, in what the reviewers were writing. So in the sense that we're both English professors. Uh, And I remember there was one review uh, we were reading where it was an L2 speaker giving wrong advice to another L2 speaker um, about their English. So it was it was kind of a funny uh, irony, although I would actually say, you know, picking up on your point about the specialization in the sciences, that this is also something where the humanities uh, and, and the background of, of most of us, not all of us, uh, really probably had a little bit to offer, because in some ways this is a, a different work that I'm doing with a, with a student of mine. Um, we're looking at how uh, uh, humanists frame the beginnings of their articles as opposed to the way scientists do. This is a student of mine who came into digital humanities from uh, computer science and then was struggling initially with the way that our articles are written in the humanities. And there is a kind of different understanding of your audience, um, in the sense that we can be hyper specialized, but, um, we don't have multiple people hyper-specialized in exactly the same thing. So, you know, if you're writing about, I just happened to read something today, if you're writing about some aspect of masculinity in uh, Lucky Jim, a Conrad novel, you're probably the only person who's doing that. And so when you're writing your article, you're writing to either people who are interested in Lucky Jim, the novel, or Conrad, the author, or masculinity, but probably not all of that unique combination. And so I thought that that allowed us probably as a group um, to, you know, to sort of read against the grain as we were looking at these reviews of papers we didn't have, which is a a kind of a really interesting space to be in. Um, And there was one thing actually that came up at the Triangle uh, meeting that was actually quite funny. Um, I don't know if Martin remembers this, but the initial group, when we went down, uh, had uh, a couple of other people who, who in the end didn't end up working on the, on the book with us, uh, some of whom were uh, lab scientists. And Martin and I were sitting in a room talking, we were looking at the initial data and we were coming up with ideas that might explain what we were looking at. And one of the team members said, I think that we're harking. And I don't know uh, if everybody knows what that means, but it means hypothesis after results known. And Martin and I <laughs> looked at him and each other and said, yeah because that's what we do. Uh, You know, uh, we're working in fields where we tend to have theses rather than hypotheses. um, And you work out and then sort of go find the evidence for what you're looking at. Anyway, I found that disciplinary, the disciplinary mix of this, that, you know, we were non-specialists who are specialists uh, to a degree in rhetoric and grammar and, and L1 English uh, reading reviews of things that we were completely non- specialist in. Uh, about articles that we don't know. Uh, I found that whole thing just fascinating uh, and then tying into that the different disciplinary expectations of people. And
3: I should highlight that we called the project Reading Peer Review because as Dan said, this is not not a project where we came to it with strong ideas. We want to test whether reviewers behave in X way in, in their reports for Plus One. What we did was we looked at what was there and then have attempted to come up with a descriptive paradigm for what we saw in the reports. And that's the really important taxonomy that Shahino, Robert, and Victoria built. It's around pages uh, four, 31 onwards in the book. You What's know, the most important work there? And it's entirely descriptive. It's, it's telling people what we saw and then trying to find an explanatory framework for why we might be seeing that
1: and this um this table one where you have these different categories the high level and the fine grain we can talk about uh, certainly a lot of what um you have been able to draw from the data and i want to go on right to do that but uh, i uh, being being someone who runs a writing program i often think of the application inside of you know the practice of writing reviews or reading reviews and and these six high level categories are just a fantastic summary of the content of a review. If anyone was ever to, you know, offer the next workshop on how to review, um, you know, science, I mean, these categories must necessarily be in there, I would think. I mean, perhaps, perhaps
3: Victoria, Robert, and Shahina would like to say a bit more about how they synthesized these categories up into the high level and and what what was involved. But I suppose in terms of changing practice, we, we kind of concluded how difficult it is to change practice and it would be I guess a little bit concerning if we just use what we describe forever after to condition future future practices. but at the same time, you're right. I think it, it tallies closely with my expectation of what I'd see in reports and therefore you know perhaps we could start to think about how we, we train people to review in ways that are positive and, and give the outcomes that we're looking for.
1: I'm leaving sli- uh, yes, I'm leaving slightly longer pauses after comments for just that reason. I don't want to interrupt people, so please.
4: Uh, yeah, just to say about the uh, taxonomy, so we developed the uh, uh, codes uh, separately initially. and then it was only uh, later through the process, like as we were going through more and more reports that we slowly started to organize those because we were seeing, you know, Uh, overlaps between them so we started to have to add comments and notes uh, to our codes to detail like exactly uh, examples of when we were applying them and when those were overlapping and then we slowly organized those into the broader categories as we were going.
2: Yes. Uh, So I can add even in some cases after um, coding some of the text and uh, reviewing our course, we need to go again and uh, delete some of the course uh, uh, we already coded. So, yeah.
1: In my view, that that really <laughs> makes the category seem just all the more sturdy um, because of that uh, process that you applied to it. Though that's that's uh, that's very interesting stuff. Let's let's move though to some of the uh, bigger questions that really um, let's say guided uh, the study and were there from the beginning. And some surprising results, some not surprising results, as you've said. Um, I would probably say. Let's start with PLOS 1. PLOS 1 being, as uh, you describe in in the book, a sort of radical departure for its time. Um, it seems to many to be sort of so humdrum nowadays. Uh, it's probably not nearly as much as people just take it for granted. But the question that was tried to, that, that the data was used for there was, okay, well, if we've got this PLOS 1, which is doing something radically different, uh, how do reviewers respond? So, sorry, Daniel, I'm not picking Sorry, up on, okay. on, the and, way, then, on, on the question. <laughs> <laughs> and I waited far too long for that one, excuse me. Um, I, I suppose I was just interested in the results that you had on um, reviewer behavior at PLOS ONE, um, given that the conditions there um, and the way that the magazine was run generally, uh, the journal, excuse me, was run generally, that uh, one might have the expectations that they, yes, indeed, did, did it differently.
3: Sure. So I think one of the key things we can pick up on there is about novelty and PLOS-1. I mean, clearly one of the most significant uh, changes that PLOS-1 sought to, to implement was to move from a conception of novelty that was about something being new, significant, a positive results, um, towards trying to instill a paradigm of Kuhnian normal science and the acceptance of replication studies, the acceptance of negative results, and downplaying novelty so moving to this idea of technical soundness in your uh, reviewing practices i mean it seems absolutely clear to me though that when we look at what plus one reviewers comment upon novelty continues to play a role there um, i think we we thought that reviewers would understand that this boundary of technical soundness but we found i think 60 out of the 78 reports we tagged or saying Remarked in some way, either positively or negatively, or sometimes both, about the potential novelty and significance of the paper. And so that that ranged from comments like the novelty and impact of the current study is low, um, through to um, saying that that someone should comment on, on the novelty of the paper. Now, importantly, In some ways, PLOS does ask for some signal about how novel things are because they want to be able to say, we're not going to decide whether we publish it based on that, but we want to know if you think it's significant because we'll put it on the front page. But on the other hand, clearly at this decision-making phase, the emphasis that reviewers were putting on novelty was uh, an an instilled internalized practice from reviewing elsewhere, um, and they carried on. But there is one heartening fact we found, which was that in some of the reports, um, reviewers remarked unfavorably upon the claims for novelty that papers were making. So some of the reviewers told authors off for um, claiming novelty and saying it doesn't really matter whether it's novel. What matters is that you've done a sound study. Um, I'm concerned about the author's insistence on the uniqueness of this study, one, one of those read. So we saw things both ways there. But overall, I think we felt that really, at this point in time, which might only be the cusp of things changing anyway, we're, we're, plus one is still relatively young, I suppose. We, we hadn't seen that shift in reviewers internalising the idea of appraising on technical soundness that we might have hoped for. Um, otherwise, if there had been a real groundswell of change within the publication.
0: It might be worth giving a tiny bit of background on that uh, our interest in sound is not just because PLOS is uh, recommending it, but I think this was one of the, the main, I guess, the recommendations rather than findings out of our article uh, Excellence Are Us uh, about the fetishization of excellency in uh, university research. And we found that, you know, if you take excellence as being a sort of proxy there for novelty, um, we found that it was really a pernicious thing um, that, you know, in some ways, false claims of novelty and false claims of excellence and, and the drive for novelty and the drive for excellence, you know, to the degree that you can combine those, uh, can be actually quite dangerous. And so I did find it indeed heartening that, um, that people would say, you know, don't make overclaims about uh, novelty. I've just had a review of some some of my work that was attacking me for uh, overclaiming the novelty, so it's also a bit of a sore spot with me right now. But um, nevertheless, I did. I, you know, we saw in our work on excellence the degree to which that pursuit of that angle rather than soundness can be really quite bad uh both for basic science but also for science policy and so i yeah yeah i was pleased to see the degree to which um reviewers were commenting flagging something maybe for the editors uh not not obsessing about novelty although i do i agree entirely with martin that 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 is the place where the legacy is still there it's probably just a reflex with us that um that that we think that that sound, that soundness is not enough, that there has to be something novel. I just really wonder, you know, another point that we make is that issue about scarcity. I really wonder in a media landscape where anybody can publish anything, as I think we've seen throughout COVID, uh, and there's a hunger or there can be a huge hunger for what we're up to, uh, if a focus on novelty rather than soundness doesn't actually do our work harm, because it keeps us out of the arena. Uh, when uh, well-informed material might, in fact, be a useful thing to have, even if it's not one hundred percent novel.
3: I think also I um I was interested in the ways in which uh, Plos's idea that w- we could be more supportive of research and have this lower threshold, but perhaps introduce a different dynamic for how reviewers respond to each other. I mean, we we open them and close the volume by. Making reference to the well-known joke in academic publishing about the harshness of mythical reviewer two, um, and uh, you know a, a basic question could be: Are review our reviews in plus one kinder than um, other places? Are they more constructive? And it, one of the ways we tried to appraise that was via this uh, concept of the shit sandwich. Uh, sorry for sorry for the expletive, but. And, I should note that the press did try to blank that out, and we did point out that we, uh, anyone who's interested in this, is probably not going to be that offended by by our language here. But the idea is that do reviewers, if they've got blunt things to say, blanket this in niceties at either end, so that you you know trying to be kind to someone. And I think we found pretty comprehensively that, that that's not the case. If they're going to be blunt in plus one and give you negative feedback, they're pretty consistently negative throughout the reviews. And some of the comments, you know, really do back up that joke about reviewer two. There's some really harsh stuff going on there. Um, that's kind of ad hominem at, at various points. Uh, you know, I don't think any serious journal should ever publish this material and so on. Um, so yeah, I think we that was one of the most fun parts of the project was finding those, those moments.
1: And there, the methodology helped out as well with the, uh, sentiment markers, which was another entire, um, method that you had uh, developed for categorizing and, 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 and giving, you know, a number to these things, uh, could, could perhaps uh, someone on the uh, methods team just briefly give us a, an intro to the, uh, sentiment markers.
4: Uh, yeah. So uh, with the different tags, when we were applying the tags to a particular sentence, we'd also attribute uh, sentiment between uh, minus 10 and 10. Uh, And we were finding, uh, as we were coding individually, there seemed to be some grouping around say uh, the tag argument that it would usually be around say the two to six range. Like it was rare that we would go higher or lower unless, you know, it would be an unusual example. Uh, but then with different tags, the sentiments would go in different ways. And we were finding as the uh, as the research progressed that when we were having these Skype sessions where we go through uh, our individual coding sentence by sentence to discuss it, we were finding that our sentiments we were attributing would often agree, like, very closely. So it felt like we were definitely coming together in terms of... Uh, kind of feeling out what the sentiment would be and agreeing on that quite easily towards the end.
5: Yes, I I would agree with you there, Rob. And I I sort of think it's important to say that perhaps in in the early stages where we were on the one hand... Um, developing the, the taxonomy and and adding to the to the categories at the sort of the broader and, and narrower level, but also um, working and spending many hours dis- discussing individual statements that um, I think you and I in particular we uh, we were quite rooted in our uh, perspectives on individual statements and I remember spending um, of sometimes up to, up to 30 minutes, um, thrashing out sort of reasons for particular categories or indeed uh, the, the range of sentiments, that the, the range of sentiment score that we felt was, was appropriate or was appropriate to attribute to individual statements. Um, and then I think, as Rob said, uh, after several hours um, and, and months working on the, on the coding and the taxonomy, there seemed to be greater convergence, and towards the end of the uh, tw- towards the end of the coding process, that that uh, there was much uh, greater agreement. And um, just to add that, I think um, to respond to the the, the question around um, our uh, as coders and, and as, as as readers on the project and uh, the influence of our own language backgrounds that I think that it's fair to say that in terms of um, some of the statements I know that that all three of us were reading statements um, that related to these sort of very uh, specialized sub and saying well we understand the individual words and they're grammatically correct but we simply don't understand that the, the message that's being communicated the message that's being conveyed and I think that um, for me anyway that that uh, was was perhaps more more important and um took up a great deal of time uh understanding negotiating reading around statements sort of on a sort of a broader level than um the significance of um let's say shahina's um first or or second language that that we tended to um for me certainly that was that was perhaps not a not as much of a, a significant point of um, cause sort of argument or negotiation. I don't know what you felt, Shahina. Uh,
2: um, uh, I must uh, um, appreciate the projects uh, like... Um, uh, inclusive approach because when I was applying for this positions, I was uh, worried about my uh, L2 status. But as I uh, know Dr. O'Donnell, who uh, has the, uh, or who practices inclusive approach, that helped. And I would like to uh, mention one thing so that legitimacy of knowledge and skills of L2 people in Canada so in uh, many cases uh, uh, they are ignored But so in that cases I felt included very included in this project so I think as I have uh, exten- extensive knowledge about qualitative coding, and they are focusing. This project is focusing qualitative coding. So I think my language didn't, uh, that wasn't a barrier for me. But uh, what I wa- want to say that uh, when I coded, I went again and again to, to take my interpretation about. Uh, uh, am I coding or am I putting the right sentiment? So sometimes I coded and put it my uh, sentiment. I went uh, again and I check oh no, uh, this might be this. So uh, it's very subjective, but I was checking again and again, uh, so that uh, it uh, uh, came like a, a quote unquote like appropriate way. So, um Yeah, and uh, as we worked, uh, uh, we worked separately, then uh, we worked combined, that helped me or helped us uh, to tell that uh, we uh, coded uh, uh, the text uh, um, as much as uh, neutrally and uh, bringing uh, two of our disciplinary backgrounds as we can, as we could.
1: Uh, this entire discussion brings us back to uh, the issue of, of, of language once more. And, and, and in fact, that's one of the uh, questions that's uh, asked of, um, of the data is how much of a role does language play in uh, reviewers' uh, verdicts? And they are the uh, higher level category of expression. Gets um, heavy use, and there's some interesting statements. I'll just read a, a couple of phrases off of uh, off of the paper here. Uh, many reviews focus their critique upon expression, right? So this is an answer to all those scientists who say it's about the numbers, it's not about the language. <laughs> and further, <laughs> and further down, the natural sciences, exemplified here in plus one, also take expression extremely seriously, and that has been very much my um, year-long experience working together with scientists and helping them write. They turn words around and turn words around all day and the the exact phrasing matters a lot to them. But this this brings us back to Robert's point, which I found so fascinating the way you put it with the L1, L2 and D1, D2, um, that it's not necessarily about the language. It's about the practice of the language. Or as an expert in second language writing once put it, uh, Ken Hyland, he said, at this level, when you're writing in the sciences, it's not about language. It's about rhetoric. So in other words, an English professor might well come to a research article in biology and be at a loss, right? Because he or she hasn't yet learned the um, disciplinary discourse.
3: I think think that's right. And um, it's the most frustrating defenses of the humanities disciplines try to claim some exclusivity around language and expression and so on. And really... You know, when you're dealing with extremely complicated scientific concepts, the way you express them does matter. And if there, is, if there isn't clarity in your expression, it leads to poor communication. I mean, part, part of the challenge here is that the evolution of the research article in the science as the form through which this is communicated means that you're only ever really getting a description of what has been done. And so making that description as perspicacious as possible is a core part of that. Now, the question is, do new practices like open data, like uh, replication studies, tr- attempt to give more of an insight into the process and what's going on? Do they obviate that need for such careful language usage given that you're exposing more of the process itself? Or does it remain as important as ever? And I, I think it's probably the latter. But it, it's interesting to me that this this need for precision has evolved it does play a role, and reviewers nearly always comment upon it when they think it's lacking.
0: I think there's an interesting thing there with attempts to uh, automate, for example, methodology checks and things like that as well. Um, you know, without going into all the detail about specific examples or specific methods, um, I think one of the problems that they're bouncing up against is that your description of what you're doing is really a rhetorical thing. Um, and understanding whether or not something is sound, in fact, uh, you, I wonder to the degree to which you would would be able to capture everything in, for example, a typology or a markup um, in a way that would allow people to have confidence in whether or not you did good work. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there is... it. There is a huge degree to which papers, I don't know if they can actually be autonomized uh, the way that uh, that certainly some people have proposed.
1: Um, one th- uh, comment that I made earlier on in the interview was that, as far as I could tell, uh, your study is unique in uh, the data coverage that it has, the uh, look that it gives us then through that data, uh, really fine-grained at what it is that peer reviewers are actually doing and so on and so forth. Um, there's no need for me to be guessing this. I'm dealing here with a whole bunch of people who know a heck of a lot about peer review. Is it true that this uh, um, study, and I don't want to <laughs> make any of you claim novelty, <laughs> but I do want to know uh, the the um, in that sense, the quality of, of the research. Does it stand out uh, because of the unique data cache that you had? To some extent... We we yes we were extremely lucky to
3: get hold of the, the PLOS one review corpus and have had that cleared. Uh, you know, plus is one of the few venues that has an explicit statement noting that reviews can be used for research purposes. Um, and you know, it was fortuitous that one of our members you know suggested this at, at that initial meeting in in North Carolina. Um, on the other hand, you know, just to downplay the novelty a little bit. Um, There have been some large-scale studies of peer review before, and the Peer Consortium, P-E-E-R-E, has done a huge amount of work in recent years on studying peer review. I mean, it's thanks to those kind of studies that we had some level of, of benchmark for how reviewers behave outside of PLOS-1. So... Although we noted that not much is known about the secluded genre, I think at another point in the book, we say, you know, there has actually been quite a lot of research into this over the years and people are thinking about it more and more. So I think we're on an exponential upwards curve in the volume of material that's going to be about peer review. And I hope that this study and what it does do differently, which I think is a close attention to the language of peer review and the the structure of peer review reports, prompts others to think about different domains in which this research might be repeated, translated, and scaled. I, I also wanted to add that we, we wanted to, from our coding exercise, to be able to train machine classification to do this at scale. I think to do that, you'd need about three times the length of time we had and five times the personnel. The process was so labor-intensive to produce that high-quality coding that we didn't have enough reports tagged for the machine learning really to take off. If someone like Google had the funding to do that and wanted to, it would be incredible to be able to have a machine that could try to do this classification itself at the moment we're we're nowhere near that level.
1: Right. And um, one other major, uh, let's say, discussion point or or interpretation approach of the study is clearly to talk about organizational change. And um, Martin, you yourself have made a few brief comments in that respect as to... Uh, well, maybe we're just at a very early stage at the moment to be able to tell why um, perhaps peer reviewers haven't changed in the radical way that uh, PLOS had intended to change the rad- um, radically change the way that uh, publishing is done. Um, but uh, again, a question out into the group, is there any particular finding that you feel more confident of? as far as the way organizations change. There he is. <laughs> as far as the way organizations change, having looked at the data and um, having thought about this so so intensely for, for this period.
3: I feel Victoria might, might have something to say on this from her um, own academic perspective. I guess from my, my point of view, I was struck by... Um, I was struck by the reports that were outliers in terms of bringing people to task for what we'd see as ingrained practices. So um, for instance, the, the reviewer, you know, this is where we get into the, the level of almost one-off anecdotal remarks rather than systemic changes. But we had a reviewer who commented on the fact that um, a reviewer said, I consider it acceptable to take key results from gray literature and submit the material for peer-review and publication in an archival journal. Um, And talking about this process of making material available early, blogging about it and so on. And it was the kind of moments of optimism that shone through as isolated practices that for me really stood out as perhaps moments of hope where people broke ranks with the expectation and and came to some new conclusion that I know would startle a few, few more conservative thinkers in these spaces. So I don't think we saw evidence of systemic change throughout. What we saw was evidence of systemic embeddedness of existing practices. But where we did have those kind of one-off remarks, though those for me were were kind of little glimmering gems among the rest. I don't know what others thought.
5: I think I would agree that um, there were really a, a very small number of, of those sort of optimistic moments in terms of, of, of what was written in, in the peer review reports. But there were some, you know, potentially some examples where um, reviewers commented on just re- returning to the notion of, of clarity, expre- clarity of expression and um, accuracy of, of, of expression, where I think reviewers were... Um, were kinder in in some of the in some of their comments, um, which you know to me I think lends itself to questions around if we're going to focus on um, multilingual scholars or L two scholars, that there are questions around um, which models of, of of English are we uh, are we all uh, writing uh, for or, or, or considering. Um, When thinking about the the peer review, some of these more occluded peer review practices, for example, are we drawing on Indian English, Canadian English or or, or British English? So I I think that there potentially is, I think, more work, but more optimism around um, the the sort of broadening um, what's considered appropriate, um, but would still adhere to uh, clarity of expression.
1: Okay. Um, Then I assume no one else is jumping in there. Very good. Um, Good. Well, uh, all of you, um, uh, thank you for your time, Martin, Robert, uh, Victoria, uh, Dan, and Shahina. Um, You've been very generous. And uh, this has been an interesting (laughs) group discussion here. Um, But I do have um, one last question. And uh, that brings me back to a, a point I had made early on. And that was about the, let's say the applications of uh, some of the findings of the study. Um, So if we might think in, in three groupings, the reviewers themselves, who were clearly at the center of the data, but one step from the reviewers are the editors themselves at the journals who work in close connection with them. And then, of course, we've got the third group, the authors. And I wonder if for all or any of these groups all or any of you could imagine some lessons that might be drawn something that you could imagine that might be done better because of what we found here something in your data that might be brought out there so that the uh, you know the, the, the publishing in 2021 can be done in a better fashion so that authors know this or reviewers know that
4: yeah i mean uh, i found it particularly useful for myself uh, as i was principal editor at the time of the project uh, I was applying it to my own peer review system and I used it to more clearly delineate uh, the responsibilities of the reviewers compared to the editors. So I just clearly set out to all the reviewers we were asking, like what they didn't have to concern themselves with as much. So issues to do with expression, particularly, although it was good to highlight when meaning wasn't clear. There were lots of reviewers who took uh, a lot of their reviewing time paying attention to uh, very small details about how a uh, claim was being expressed rather than getting into the meatier details. So it was really trying to instruct reviewers like what to pay more attention to, I found really helpful.
3: I suppose for me, the one of the key points is about the role of technology in, in social change in, around our processes in the academy. I mean, it seems clear that PLOS One can only have its policy because it is a digital journal and the scarcity of the digital is, is not conditioned by a print scarcity and so forth, which means that you can have this proliferation of papers and try to review on lighter criteria that, that are around technical soundness. On the other hand, there are lots of people who believe that simply changing technologies means that all of our social processes will change immediately. And clearly, this technological determinism doesn't bear out. Um, Peer review is a social process, which has not lasted as long as people think. It's not been around for as long as people would like to imagine. has really firmly embedded itself in our imagination, as you said at the beginning, of how we think that science has always and should work. Changing it is going to be more than a matter of introducing digital publication technologies. It's going to involve showing the social benefits of new structures, and showing the social weaknesses of the ways that
0: peer review dysfunctions at, at the moment. I I had two issues that came up with mine uh, in thinking about it. The first was, I think, picking up on what Robert was saying, um, the uh, understanding peer review as a genre, because as we say at one point, it's, it's a strange genre of scientific writing because uh, nobody gets to see it ever. Um, and so you really sort of assume that that you know what everybody else is doing. You only see the ones that are written about you or the ones that you've written. Um, And I thought it was very interesting. I noticed in my own conversations with people around the university that probably that's the biggest thing that came out of of the work, uh, discussing with people what peer review looks like, discussing disciplinary differences uh, in how peer review and what the expectations are. Um, The other thing that that really has struck me and and is a slightly longer term thing has been this question of soundness, and then again thinking about you know D one and D two, how does that apply to the humanities? I know Martin and I had a conversation about this quite a while ago about what would that look like? What would a what would a soundness test be on literary criticism? What would a soundness test be on uh, Germanic philology? Um, so that th- those were the two big things for me.
1: Any other? thoughts or all right good then um, uh, again thank you uh, in all directions to everyone there Uh, that is (laughs) that is Martin Eve, Dan O'Donnell Robert Gaddy, Victoria O'Donnelly and Shahina Parvin. two further authors couldn't make today's um, uh, interview Cameron Nalon and Samuel Moore and this is about their book uh, reading peer review PLOS, One, and Institutional Change in Academia, published this year by Cambridge University Press. It is also open access, and you'll find the link below. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to all of you. Goodbye. And this is bye uh, to everyone listening. Uh, Until next time, uh, here on Scholarly Communication. Bye-bye.